when you look at across the world, you know, in developing countries, uh, you know, they learn to deal with background levels of inflation for periods of time that are longer. Um, the, the risk is that when you get kind of sustained, like runaway inflation, the problem is that everything becomes way less organized because contracts have to be renewed more quickly. Um, and so there's all these frictions grow throughout the economy. And then basically the challenge that inflation is kind of a result of disorganization. Like basically things are not working right. The, you know, the capital's impaired in some way. And it's almost like disorganization leads to more disorganization, which then leads to more disorganization. And so it, right. it, it kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So I think that's the challenge is why inflation's happening and who's getting the new money uh, because that, that impacts how they feel it. Welcome to Paychecks Thrive, a business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey, everybody, it's Gene Marks, and welcome back again to the Paychecks Thrive podcast. Really glad to have you here if you're listening or watching, and I'm glad to have back as a returning guest, uh, hopefully for many more return visits, Lynn Alden. Lynn is the founder of the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, um, and you can reach her at lynnalden.com. Lynn, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be back. I enjoyed our prior discussion. Yeah, so did I. And to recap our prior discussion, just so people can get a little you know, knowledge of, of who you are and what you do and why you're here, actually, just tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. So my background is a blend of engineering and finance. Uh, I originally came from the aviation uh, industry, uh, focused initially on engineering, moved into uh, overseeing their procurement, their finances. Um, and I eventually founded uh, Lynn Alden Investment Strategy to provide basically analysis on sectors that I, I cover, uh, usually macroeconomic, um, uh, as well as things that touch in the tech or energy uh, that I, I tend to spend a little extra time on. Uh, and I generally treat it like a systems engineering approach because we have this kind of complex set of systems and you can use the same type of uh, logic uh, to address it. Basically, it's, just, it's this big, highly variable thing. There's inputs and outputs and I kind of just go through it systemically and try to you know break it down and say, okay, what what are the bottlenecks here? What are the likely range of outcomes? And uh, I, I try to basically make institutional type of research uh, in plain English. So it is useful for both retail investors, uh, business owners, uh, institutional allocators uh, across the board. That's great. And you make your money, you have a, you have a newsletter. So that, that is quite popular that people can subscribe to on your website. Uh, and then also you do consulting for you know specific clients that want to know where the economy is going. Am I, is that correct? Yes, I do. I do consulting and I also am involved with some startups as well, uh, a little bit in the VC space. Great. All right. Well, it's great. Well, I'm glad to have you here. So, um, like I said, before we get started, so our audience are small and mid-sized business owners for the most part. You know, these are employer-owned businesses. Everybody is trying to figure out where the economy is going. No one really knows, and no offense on you, Lynn, but you don't really, you know, we don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're trying yeah. to figure it out. Um, and this is, it, it's a, it's a weird it's a weird economy that we're dealing with, as as you're well aware. Who would have thought that, you know, we have record low unemployment and, you know, and, you know interest rates are higher than they've been in the past 30 years. Um, and yet the economy keeps chugging along. Let's start with real estate and housing and the construction, you know, um, industries. Um, some data that came out last week that I, I do want to share with you. One has to do with consumer prices. Um, you know, the, the, the cost of shelter um, has, has slowed down. The 
this is the cost of basically rents um, to only an 8% year over year increase. Uh, so it's still high, but good news that it's trending in the right you know, direction. Uh, meanwhile, the, the National Association of Realtors um, are reporting that, you know, median house prices are, um, are, are, are kind of stuck where they are. They have been declining as well. Um, new listings, they say, of sellers putting homes up for sale were down again this week by 18% from a year ago, which is, you know, certainly a lot. And, and residential sales still have not met, you know, the same levels that we saw pre-COVID, but they've been sort of the bright spot of the, uh, you know, of the, of the housing and the real estate industry. So, so Lynn, talk to us a little bit what's going on in your thoughts about housing and real estate. Um, for all the people that are listening here that are in this industry, what areas do you think are going to be, are going to be regrowing? What areas do you think will be recovering and um, where are you, where are your concerns? Yeah, I think we're dealing with a couple different cross currents that are that are somewhat conflicting, which is why I think we end up with this unusual type of environment. And so, basically, the sharp increase in mortgage rates, um, you know, to one to one extent, it puts downward pressure on prices, but then it also means that nobody wants to sell if they can help it uh, if they've got a mortgage attached to their property. Uh, if you're if you're locked in it under three percent or under four percent. Um, that's like an asset for, you know, it's, it's a liability, but for them, it's like the fact that they hold that and they can never replace it is something they want to hold on to. And so you have both affordability problems on, on, you know, the buy side and also, a uh, 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 like a lack of desire to sell on the sell side. Right. Uh, and so it's been decent for home builders, uh, to come in and fill that gap. And so we've seen. Basically, the housing sector manifests mainly in a slowdown in activity. So there's not a lot of turnover. There's not a lot of houses being sold. Um, but we have not seen that big, big price correction that a lot of people uh, expected. Um, and I've, I've been kind of in the camp that, uh, you know, obviously real estate is a very local market. So, you know, there's, there's very different types of cities and different types of, um, you know, they're going to behave very differently. But in general, looking at linear markets nationwide, I've been kind of in the camp that it's going to be flat pricing for a while, flat and choppy, because on one hand, you have that interest rate pressure. But then you also have that lack of selling. And then this is compounded by the fact that we're still running very large deficits. I think this is going to be a theme to pay attention to is just, it, you know, the, the phrasing is kind of um, fiscal dominance is, is, is a term I think we'll hear more of, which is when you have a backdrop of, of deficits of this size, it does provide a tailwind to some extent. Uh, to parts of the economy. Um, and so on one hand, you know, the higher rates pushing prices down, the deficit and other things kind of keeping them up, the, the fact that there's not many sellers keeping it up. And so it's obviously this is a challenging environment for businesses that care about volumes, right? If you're if you're if you're involved in the turnover, that that's where you're most hurt. We also see that the interest rate policy to, to kind of wrap up the point, it's it has very uneven impacts. So if you're a large corporation and you mostly access debt debt financing through you know bond issuance. And a lot of them, you know, if they're investment grade, they've locked in pretty long durations. Uh, so kind of like a homeowner, they're sitting pretty tight. They're not very interest rate sensitive on average. You know, I was looking at a pipeline company, for example, and their average debt maturity is 20 years at at like four percent or four like five percent. Just it's just locked in, basically the opposite of what the, what the banks are dealing with. Um, whereas smaller businesses, obviously, are more reliant on bank f financing, tend to have shorter average. Um, you know, maturity of, of their various types of loans and, and, and liabilities. And so uh, these smaller businesses are more impacted. So you, you have to kind of this very uneven impact from the rates.
Staying on the real estate for just a minute, and then I, I do want to get to some of your points on interest rates and deficits. Um, you know, it, 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 in th a lot of buyers are put off by what you just said. They, they're, they're sitting on maybe three or four percent mortgages to get a new home. Your mortgage is seven or eight percent, um, so it, it puts off a lot of people from selling their existing home. Yeah, I always thought that you know when, when I talk about that with my clients, I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it that mortgage rates are certainly higher than what they've been you know before. You can always refinance though down down the road, you know. And I, I wonder if not enough uh, enough people know that, or maybe they just do know that, and they just don't want to incur the cost even in the short term. How far down the road do you think somebody would have to hold on to a seven or a seven and a half percent mortgage before they would be looking at at refinancing? Do you think that's a twenty twenty four thing, twenty twenty five? I think there's a decent chance of refinancing, but I, I don't really see them getting as low. Uh, in that time frame as what, what's previously been available. Um, and of course, the challenge with the homeowner is, you know, especially if it's not a rental property, if it's just your primary home, you're trying to be conservative with it. Uh, and so you're trying not to, for example, stretch. Uh, and so we see a lot of, um, you know, we look at affordability ratios, like uh, the, the median house price compared to the, you know, like how many hours of work, for example, does it take to afford that house? Um, or how many hours a week do they have to work to afford the mortgage? Um, you know, different metrics like that show that there's, they're very expensive. And so if they buy something they can't quite afford with the hope that it comes down, that's it's kind of like being in the same situation as having like a variable rate mortgage. You're 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 kind of playing chance, uh, and so I, I think there's been some conservatism, probably rightfully so, on people saying, "Well, I can refinance." It's like, well, maybe, but we don't know when. We don't know at, at how much of a lower level that's really going to materialize. Um, and, Makes sense. And, yeah, and I think I think a lot of the mobility we're seeing is from you know we have to remember that not every house is bought on mortgage. Um, uh, you know, especially especially the older demographic, on average, they have a lot more home equity, uh, and and so they they're a lot more portable. Um, whereas the it, the the part that's locked in is really that that tied to mortgages. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's funny your your work is so analytical and mathematical, and then there there are like actually some non quantifiable things I think going on as well. I mean, people have there was a, a big spike in home buying, you know, during during COVID. There was a lot of people that um, have been working from home that previously weren't working from home or now maybe appreciating their homes that they never appreciated before. So they're actually enjoying, you know, their housing and don't have that desire to sell. Um, there is that sort of less mobility. There's, there's a lot of factors that are pushing people, but on the new housing, we, we still have a huge shortage of available housing. And I guess that's, that's just going to continue to be an opportunity for home builders going forward. Does that make sense? I think so. I, you know, I'm not sure we'll see the same type of performance we saw in the first half of this year, uh, but I do think that home builders still have a runway ahead of them, uh, and 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 other businesses that are part of that whole supply chain of new house construction and turnover and remodeling. Yeah, it makes sense. It's funny we have a house down the Jersey Shore, and um, there's like a bunch of old homes there that are like 50, 60 years old. That there's even new requirements now that like these homes have to be like built on like a certain level above the ground now in case there's flooding. And you could just see the home builders down there flocking because yeah, anybody who sells a home, it's pretty going to be a tear down of new construction. So you were right earlier what you said. It really just depends on where you are, um, you know, and and where your community is. It depends on inventory and it depends on pricing in your region. It's so localized real estate. It's hard to just make a blanket statement about the real estate industry in the entire country, you know?
Yeah, that's also why we see some divergence. So if you look at, for example, median sales price of houses uh, yeah. uh, is down, but for example, the case shiller uh, has turned back up. And so different ways of measuring it, depending on what region you use, how you weight them, how you, how you arrive at the pricing, you're going to get very different numbers. And so generally what we've seen is that most markets, these like linear uh, you know, kind of markets you don't think about, most of them are, are doing fine in terms of price. And most of the price declines have been isolated to certain cities, certain geographies, and that, that pulls down the whole average. Right. All right. Great point. All right. So we talked about interest rates before. Um, you mentioned about deficits giving giving a tailwind um, to, you know, to, to, I guess, spending. I, I mean, I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by that. And I was hoping you could explain that more. Sure. So a, a fiscal deficit um, has kind of it impacts the economy in ways that are generally near term bullish and longer term, obviously a problem when you, when you have all that debt accumulation. Uh, but generally, a deficit is a type of stimulus. Uh, that's why during recessions, they'll usually either there could be a, a tax cut program, there could be some sort of spending increase. Um, and so we're in the kind of unusual environment right now where the federal government's running like 8% of GDP deficits when we're not even in a recession. Uh, that, that's, that's like, you know, that's nearly as high as they reached at during the, the Great Recession of, you know, 2008, 2009. And we're, we're running that without a recession. Um, so despite very low unemployment, we're, we're kind of still plowing that stimulus in. And a lot of that is demographics based. Uh, so a lot of that is social security. A lot of that is healthcare. Uh, some of it's, you know, uptick in military expenditure. But a lot of that does cycle back into the economy. It doesn't cycle as quickly as a stimulus check or child care tax credit. You know, you're not just like injecting money right into like the, say, lower middle class. Uh, but it is coming out in the form of higher interest expense uh, to retirees that are, you know, able to travel with it, able to able to go to restaurants with it, and then able to buy services with it, and able to help their grandkids afford a wedding with it. Like, you know, it does trickle uh, through the economy. And so it's it's somewhat of a... Uh, counterforce against the tightening of monetary policy. And, you know, one of the challenges is so the inflation of the 1970s, you know, the majority of money creation was from bank lending. So the baby boomers that were born in the, the late 40s were starting to enter their home buying years. That's a that's a period of more rapid credit creation. Uh, and so you had an uptick in 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 bank lending. That was the peak ever for for the rate, rate of new loan creation. Then you add to it, obviously, you know, um, oil embargoes and other challenges like that, you get a pretty inflationary environment. And so the main tool there is trying to raise rates to slow down the bank lending. And back then, federal debt to GDP was only 30%. Uh, and so the increase in interest expense was meaningful, especially at the rates, rate, rates they did. But the negative impact on loan creation was a bigger force. So that right. was a disinflationary pressure. If you go back to the 1940s, the inflation was almost all fiscal driven, right? So it wasn't because banks were lending. It was because the government was running 30% of GDP deficits to fight the war. And most of that right. money would get plowed back into the economy. You know, soldier salaries, manufacturing, what, you know, commodities, whatever the case may be. Sounds and familiar. So you had, yeah, and so you had right. the 2020s has been a lot like the 40s, where it's been it's been very fiscal driven inflation. The most of the money supply growth is not from excessive levels of bank lending; it's from the deficits. And then when you have over 100 percent of GDP uh, public debt and you raise rates, that increases the deficits in what is already deficit driven inflation. And at a time when homeowners and large corporations have locked in a lot of fixed rate debt making them less like uh, um, influenced by interest rates. And so you actually have this kind of period where the interest rates are not as 
impactful as you might have otherwise thought they were. And at extreme ends can even become pro-inflationary. I don't think we're there yet, but they're, they're certainly having mixed results in this type of economy. When you look at the Fed's balance sheet, I mean, their MG money supply, it's still like around 21 trillion, you know, trillion dollars. I mean, it's still like around six trillion higher than it was pre-COVID. Um, you see it edging downwards, which is, you know, the right direction and a good sign. But I look at it, I'm like, wow, there's still like a long way to go. And it seems like there is still so much money that has been spent and still to be spent. I mean, there's obviously all of the stimulus bills that are still having their impact. There are the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act. There's like the state small business credit initiative, which is like, you know, $10 billion just going out in the economy, this funding. It was supposed to be for COVID, but by the time the Treasury Department finally got around to approving it, like COVID was pretty much in the river. But it's a lot of money that's washing around in the system. And I just, I it, 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 it concerns me that the Fed does not have all the tools that they need to, to constrain that. They have to almost wait for the economy to absorb all of that. Has it surprised you that inflation has been on the downturn over the past, you know, six months or so? Did that were you expecting it to go another direction? Uh, so I expected the disinflation to occur. Um, you know, if you would have asked me nine months ago, I would have thought that we probably would have been in a recession by now. Um, but it was earlier this year where I started to see that we kind of crossed the point where interest rates were no longer being as impactful as they were initially. Right. And they were actually now leading to larger deficits. So, for example, you know, if you look at the, what the deficit did, it blew out obviously during 2020, 2021. And then it was during 2022 that the deficit actually came back down pretty low. And that was partly because all of the um, you know the capital gains taxes of all the good asset pricing in 2021 were all payable in 2022, uh, so tax you know tax came with a lag, uh, and some of that spending wound down. Uh, but then it started widening again, uh, you know, in late 2022 and then into 2023. And when I started to see that happening, I said, okay, this is actually this is getting interesting now. Um, and so it's, it's not that the inflation's really done anything different than I thought, but I, I do think that um, the adjustment I've made is to see that that the fiscal, the ongoing deficits are they, they keep pushing back the potential range for a recession and keep making the economy more resilient than we otherwise would have. And I think the risk there is that we do risk another wave of inflation. You know, this has been a period of economic deceleration for the most part. Obviously, certain industries are more resilient than others. But as we've, we've you know, we've seen manufacturing indicators go down, real estate indicators go down, all these kind of areas uh, get tech. a lot softer. Yeah, yeah tech. Um, you know, when we have the next round of acceleration again, uh, my concern is that inflation would still be there because some of the underlying forces are still there. So you still have the large background deficits. Uh, you still have, you know, arguably underinvestment in like the energy sector. Uh, and so you, you could have more kind of price spikes in that that type of area. I guess then you're a fan then of maintaining interest rates at their current levels or even higher um, to try and provide a, you know, a, you know, a, you know, an anti-motivation or disincentivization for more spending, more you know, capital equipment purchases, more, uh, you know, more investment, I guess, because that would heat up the economy and potentially spur inflation. Um, so are, are you, you know, are you happy with the level of interest rates where they are now? Do you think, and, and as part of that question, you had just said before that, you know, as, as our, as this is no longer the nine, this is like the 1940s, not the 1950s. In other words, the, uh, uh, you know, interest rates have less of an effect um, on reducing deficits. Uh, you, is it you? Is it worth keeping interest rates this high? Do you think that they should be higher? 
So I think they that there should be a cost of capital. Uh, so it should not be at the zero level that it was before. Right. You know, I, I think a risk is that going back to your prior point is that the Fed doesn't really have the tools really to deal with fiscal driven inflation. There are certain things, you know, let's say an oil shortage or or very large fiscal deficits. Those types of variables are largely outside of the Fed purview. And so the best that they can do is attack it indirectly. So if they say, okay, well, the federal sector is stimulatory, we can try to slow down the private sector to balance that out. But is that at the end of the day what we want? You know, when when we think about getting inflation under control, we really want disinflationary growth. If if you temporarily get inflation under control with a recession and then you stimulate out of the recession and get another round of inflation, that's not really what we're after. Um, so I, you know, I think one thing that the Fed could do is kind of point out the issue. I mean, one one, you know, the Fed is interesting because in some ways they're like a fourth branch of government. Um, you know, they're a semi-political organization. Uh, they're kind of like the Supreme Court, where they're not really supposed to be political. Like you, they're, you it's almost like a, it's a separate type. Uh, but during uh, kind of the peak of of 2020, uh, Powell uh, called for more fiscal spending. He's like, you know, we've we've kind of used our tools. We need more fiscal. I, I think he's at the phase now where it, it would be right to say, hey, some of like the inflation we're seeing, the sticky part is is partially because of this background deficit spending that's really outside of our control. And so, you know, we can only offset so much of that and that, that you know, that the legislative branch has to really look at, at some of the deficit spending. Um, outside of that, I, I think there's a risk that they basically, the Fed tries to overdo it, um, even though they don't really have the right tools. So they might overuse tools that they have because, you know, it, it's like you're trying to hammer a nail in with a wrench sure. and you just keep doing it because you're like, well, it's the only tool I have. So, Sure. Yeah. You know, um, you know, younger people, um, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, younger people have grown up um, in, in an era of like almost zero percent inflation. And like, that's what they're used to. So, you know, when it goes up to even three, four or five percent, people are like, you know, freaking out about it. I mean, I remember when inflation, this is like the late 70s, early 80s, obviously it was a lot higher than that. Um, you know, in your opinion, as an economist, is like, is there is there an acceptable level of inflation is four percent inflation? so bad for an economy as long as wages are keeping pace? So it, it partially depends on where it's coming from. Uh, okay. the, the biggest risk, I think, is uneven types of inflation. Mm. Um, and so, you know, some of the inflation we've seen in the past were injected at the bottom. Like a lot of that 1940 stuff was injected. You know, the GIs came back and they were, you know, they were sure. put, you know, 8 million were put through technical school and college and given mortgage assistance. So it was kind of like that bottom up injection. The challenge in this cycle is that some of it was bottom up but a lot of it was also top down, like, um, you know, uh, people would, see, would receive stimulus checks, but then also small business owners would get PPP loans to turn into grants. And for some of them, they needed it, whereas other ones, they didn't really need it. And so a lot of that would just go to the bottom line. There's been studies showing that something like two thirds of it uh, didn't really go to workers. And so there's a lot of money creation. And, and so now I think the challenge is that it's hard for wages to keep up. Um, and when you look at across the world, you know, in developing countries, uh, you know, they learn to deal with background levels of inflation for periods of time that are longer. Um, the, the risk is that when you get kind of sustained, like runaway inflation, the problem is that everything becomes way less organized because contracts have to be renewed more quickly. Um, 
And so there's all these frictions grow throughout the economy. And then basically the challenge that inflation is kind of a result of disorganization. Like basically things are not working right. The, you know, the capital's impaired in some way. And it's almost like disorganization leads to more disorganization, which then leads to more disorganization. And so it, right. it kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So I think that's the challenge is why inflation is happening and who's getting the new money, uh, because that, that impacts how they feel it. I got it. It's a great answer. Um, all right. Uh, next, and then we'll, we'll let you go. I, I do want to get back to interest rates for just a minute. Um, so, you know, the Fed, you know, Open Market Committee, you know, has announced they're going to have another 25 basis point increase. Um, so you know, many of my clients right now, you know, are, are facing a prime rate of, you know, eight and a half percent, could be even higher as much as nine percent soon, um, which means if you're a small business and you're you're borrowing money, uh, you are, you know, you're looking at maybe 11, 12 percent, you know, depending on their credit worthiness for new equipment, you know, property for, uh, you know, working capital. It's a big deal. And all of this happened in a really short period of time. What I'm seeing with my clients, and I have about 600 in my practice, is that they they got financing over the past couple of years, but I'm looking at refinancing coming up. And I get concerned because the people that want to refinance their existing term loans or their existing working capital loans are going to be looking at a lot higher cost of capital. And I think that affects, you know, not only their ability to get those loans, I think banks will be questioning uh, whether they the, the debt maintenance will be there for them to continue to extend those loans or even to get that financing. Well, just it's just an ROI calculation as to whether or not it's makes sense to get this for this piece of equipment. The financing costs are too much and we'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'm just going to defer until it makes more sense to me. Do you see those similar headwinds? Because when, you know, when we have these are small businesses. I'm actually not familiar with the data about corporate, you know, corporate financings and where, you know, what's coming due then that's going to have to be financed at a higher interest rate. Do you, do you think that's a potential headwind over the next six to 12 months? I do. And we th when we think about industry rates, that's why I have to think that we have to think both in terms of level and duration, because merely staying at the current level will get tighter over time as more of these types of, of liabilities become due and get refinanced. And again, so we can segment the market. So at the, at the very high end, so the big corporations, you know, they, they've got these like long duration locked in bonds. Now, obviously some comes due, but a very small percentage of it comes due every year because they've really extended their durations. Whereas you look at either, uh, you know, more troubled areas of the large market, you know, um, office or you know junk junk rated types of bonds they obviously have shorter durations and then when you go into small businesses and bank lending um you know basically these are these are shorter durations and so that refinancing i think is a key risk that's still present and the weird thing is it works both ways so for example that deficit i talked about that is kind of fueling some of this that also will get bigger just as more and more uh, treasury debt uh, matures and gets refinanced at higher rates. So actually, the deficits will keep increasing even at current rates. But then also, the drag on, on these smaller businesses will also keep increasing as more of their debt comes due at these higher rates. And so I, I do think that's why it makes sense for the Fed to slow down here and to see, okay, over the next six months, 12 months, wh the, what we've already done, how is that going to impact things, both on the stimulatory side and the, the drag side? All of this converts into um, your, you know, sort of prospects for the economy over the next, say, three to six months. And, you know, when I look at the economy and, and again, I can I go to industry association after industry association, Lynn, and um, they, they, they all I, I hear their numbers because, you know, before I 
speak to them. They're, they do their business meeting. They go over, you know, how the association is doing. And across the board, I mean, with some exceptions, like you've mentioned, manufacturing, construction, technology, most people are doing pretty good. I mean, it's been a fairly good year for most businesses. And yet all of them are uncertain about, you know, the future, which is not uncommon. And um, but most are no one's panicking about the economy. You know, they're just expecting it to be, you know, you know, a two to three percent type of year. And, you know, we'll see what happens in the next elections in 2024. Is that sort of your take as well? Is there any areas of the economy that are panicking you right now? Um, or are you fairly confident of mostly stability over the next I few think, months? Yeah, so it's those, it's those specific pockets. So unprofitable tech that's reliant on constant equity issuance. That's been a, that's been a problem. And then obviously uh, commercial real estate, um, especially office, because they, they run it. It's, it's both problem of the property itself is partially vacant. And then also they're running into that refinancing wall. And so there are these areas that are almost apocalyptic, but they're generally small. They're not like, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of parts of the economy. And when you add three or four of them together, um, you know, I, I do think we could see a mild recession by the end of the year or early next year. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, the prior year, we kind of bounced off. We had the two negative quarters in a row. Uh, but we didn't have some some of the other signs of recession, like a you know increase in unemployment, things like that. I think we could see another type of slowdown that you know people will debate whether or not it was a recession or not, uh, depending on what metrics you look at. Um, but I, I still think we have this somewhat stagflationary environment, and you know one of the challenges is that the the higher cost of capital slows down some of the supply side response. Uh, and so, for example, we're seeing that in the shale oil industry. Where drilling has already rolled over, um, and you know overall production tends to follow with a lag, uh, and so production is still increasing, but drilling has already rolled over, and so I think we have increasing risk of a little bit more tightness on the supply side, which then which then can you know keep the Fed elevated, keep inflation metrics above the two percent target that they aim for. Uh, so I still think this is kind of going to be a, a process that's that's you're going to have some kind of unpleasant quarters. All right. Well, super helpful. Lynn, this is great talking with you again. We're going to hopefully have you back in another couple of months. We'll talk about where the economy is going. I have other, I want to get into crypto with you as well. I think our, our, you know, audience needs an education from you on the pros and the cons and where you think things are going. We have lots to talk about, uh, but thank you. It was great and informative discussion. I appreciate your time. Happy to. Thanks for having me. Lynn Alden is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy Group. Lynn, Lynn, uh, Inc. Lynn Alden Investment Strategy Investment strategy. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) You can find Lynn at lynnalden.com. L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N. Lynn, thank you again. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? Please let us know. Visit payx.me forward slash Thrive Topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help visit the resource hub at paychecks.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychecks can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychecks Incorporated 2023. All rights reserved.